0: Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. Coming to you every Monday. Sometimes we come out on Thursdays with bonus episodes. Those are kind of random. So riding with me today, as always, is my good buddy, my co-host, CK. And we're going to change it up. Today, I get introduced to the guest. And ever since we started this podcast, I thought, we want this person on. We really want to talk to this person. And They've been involved in the livestock industry for close to 40 years now. They've transformed uh, from the bottom up a lot of things um, that we do in the industry and a lot of ways that we think about cattle in the industry. Highly unique mind. So without any further ado, I want to welcome the one and only Temple Grandin Ranching Reboot. Temple, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Temple, I got to say... It is it is an honor uh to be able to talk with you and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to visit with.
1: Okay, well great.
0: So some things that we uh we discussed earlier that we really want to want to cover is uh you talked about we want to talk about some sister agility. Bag. I don't think ask you a lot of the only really ask our guests like who are you and mm-hmm. how did you get where you're okay. at. I think that's a little bit superfluous if nobody's heard of Temple Grandin at this point. Um I think you're kind of legendary. So If you want to just dive right into it, I also want to talk about the... No, I want to just
1: dive right in. There's a lot of people that think, you know, that everything with livestock wrecks the environment. I've been getting more and more interested in in regenerative grazing systems that can improve the land, uh, cover crops uh, that are rotated with other crops uh, and then graze animals on it. And if they do these things right, they can actually improve soil. And you've got a lot of innovative um, you know, people out there starting to do these. And I think it needs to be really encouraged.
0: That's one of the things we're really trying to do with this podcast. And we're trying to get some of these stories told and give people a place to tell their stories and hopefully inspire others.
1: Well, what you need to do is be getting different innovators on the podcast that can tell about what they did. Also, what I've learned about regenerative agriculture is that it's very, very local site specific. Something that works in one part of the country would not work somewhere else. People ask me about it and I say you better get really good local advice on on what to do and what works. I've been getting that Stockman Grass Farmer newspaper um, Mm -hmm. that has a lot of innovative stuff in it. I read that. Um, The thing that's true in every industry, I don't care whether it's electronics or whether it's agriculture, the little guys innovate. The, The little people innovate. Uh, that's the way it's been for just about everything. It. The big guys don't often do the innovation. And things that originally were sort of looked at as far out or alternative, you know, then, you know, 20 years later, 10 years later, it becomes mainstream. I've seen that with probiotics in chickens. I remember when the industry was, like, laughing at that, And then in 2020, it was giant banners hanging down the escalator uh, at the big international food show. Show. So, um, And that's something that, you know, Producers, producers
2: Why do you think that is? Do you think because of they're not as scared of failure because they're at a lower scale, or they just understand things better? No, I think what happens with
1: big corporations, and I'm, this is true in every field, not just ag. Right. They kind of get bureaucratic hardening of the arteries. Let's look at Kodak. Uh, Kodak, right here in in Fort Collins, had a gigantic uh, uh, plant for making film, and they didn't. Uh, and they invented some of the digital camera stuff originally. And they just let themselves go broke. Uh, They're it, it, it just about broke.
0: They failed to adapt you know, to the changing market from film they, to digital. They didn't
1: adapt. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I call even back in the '70s, they used to call this bureaucratic hardening of the artery. And they, they, um, then the innovators that might have inside the company, um, they just can't get through all the bureaucracy. Right. But a lot of things start out very small. I mean, think about some of the tech companies like Google and Facebook start out in dorm room. That's an example right. of a little guy innovating. And that's true for a lot of very innovative things. They started out really small. Hmm. doesn't matter what field it's in.
0: I've been throwing around the term institutional inertia for quite a while. You know, the larger an institution is, the longer it's been lurching in one direction, the harder it is to change that direction
1: well it's sort of like trying to get a giant ship to change direction yeah kind of the same thing they they just get entrenched
0: so what are some of the things that that people can do to start moving that lever
1: well one of the things i think has been moving some of the things is was covid we learned big is fragile um there was a terrible a terrible situation where the um a uh, big meat packing plant shut down, and there's no place to slaughter the pigs until they had to just destroy on the farm 300,000 head of pigs. That's totally right. terrible. You know, people started seeing shelves stripped, supply chain disruptions. We're getting more and more of that. it's fragile. A fire in a in an electronic chip factory in Japan uh, now has uh, caused car manufacturer to slow down a whole bunch, and they had to shut a plant because they can't get electronic chips. That's just one more example of Big is fragile. Big, when it works, is very efficient. It can do a really good job. But when it breaks, you're in trouble. If you have a more distributed supply chain, it's going to be more expensive to get whatever product comes out of that supply chain. But when something breaks, it doesn't wreck the whole supply chain.
0: It's resilient. And right after
1: COVID um, shut down the great big pork plant, I got all kinds of people wanting to build small beef plants, both medium-sized and very small ones ranchers that want to sell you know, direct, uh, all, all kinds of inquiries, and, and plants have been built. So I can remember when we had a more distributed supply chain, and the mistake that was made back in the 80s, when a lot of that shut down, is that they simply couldn't um, um, compete price-wise with the big ones. Now, the way to have a more distributed supply chain um, coexist, we need to be following sort of the model of our beer industry, where you have little tiny craft brewers that are expensive, coexisting with the great big Budweiser plant that we've got right here in Fort Collins, the uh, small guys have to have a niche. Now, in an emergency, they can, you know, fill in, but they can't compete head-to-head with the big guy on cost. There's no way. Now, you go down to New Zealand, I've been to meat plants down there, they have quite a few what they call boutique plants. They'll do an order of maybe 200 boxes of something, very, very small orders. That's their niche.
0: And we have, but there's nowhere that we can find than. to do that in this country. If you can't, if you can't get a semi-load or if you can't, if you can't get a container load lot of product, you even want to take your phone call.
1: Well, I think people are going to be getting less of that because we're realizing that the supply chain for, you know, generic pharmaceuticals, really common drugs like an antibiotic you might need when you're really sick, uh, that supply chain get disrupted. Um, uh, I've been looking at vaccine supply chains, this little tiny filter or some other tiny little uh, ingredient or part they need. Um, they come from one place. See, it's true for many, many, many different products. And I oh. think the thing that's the wake-up call is when you see the shelves stripped in the store.
2: Mm-hmm. Then
1: people go, whoa, there's a problem. I remember reading an interview uh, one time, uh, uh, somebody back east when we had all those hurricanes and storms, and some lady said, I wasn't scared until I watched them strip the shelves at Walmart. Then I got scared.
2: yeah.
0: Nobody panics. That was for me as... too,
2: though. That was like, oh, maybe I should do
1: something. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Nobody panics well, when there's and, food on the shelf. Nobody panics full well, yeah, refrigerator.
1: The, just the food is uh, see it stripped off the shelves, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of these things are going to start, you know, one small innovator at a time. And and there's an interesting thing with plant evolution that I read was a review of a book in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, it talked about the circulatory system in the leaf of the mm-hmm. primitive plants like the ginkgo and the more modern plant. And the ginkgo, if you look at it, just has straight lines. So if, it, so if an insect eats it or something rips the leaf, the leaf is going to you know die because it just has one route to get its water and nutrients. Where the more modern trees, they have a circuitous uh, route through the leaf. So if the caterpillar or something eats it, the leaf can still get nutrition. Now that more circuitous route takes uh, more energy and materials to build. Modern plants figured out that a more distributed supply chain was a
0: good thing. So, what can we do moving forward? You know, we're we're Well, I in.
1: think what's happening, what's happening moving forward, is that you're um, you're getting uh, you're getting a lot of people stepping forward and realizing in all kinds of businesses. Because I, I read Business Week in the Wall Street Journal, and they're getting very concerned about these big centralized supply chains, not just for ag agriculture products, but for lots of other things too. And that maybe we need to not put all our eggs in one basket. And we're realizing now that gigantic container ship that to hold twenty thousand containers. Maybe it's not yeah. such a good idea. It's stuck sideways right now in the Suez Canal. Right now if we talk.
0: Yeah, oh really? We are gonna air this yeah. next Monday. So maybe by the time this airs that traffic jam will be unjammed. I've I've actually been through but the it already Suez has Canal. a hundred ship
1: a hundred ship but there's a point where you get a container ship too big. And some yeah. of the shipping companies are realizing that maybe a ship that big is not a good idea, because when something goes wrong, you're in trouble. And it's and then I read in the paper they might have to unload the containers while it's stuck there. That's kind of huh?
0: that's a that'd be a fun logistical a puzzle cranes. to to that'd be a fun logistical puzzle to figure out how do you get a well, floating crane out to there a to offload containers? You're going
1: to have, have a, most construction cranes won't pick up that kind of weight.
0: Yeah, it's You see,
1: see, when I think about things like this, it's not abstract. I am a visual thinker. Everything I think about, pictures. And I'm thinking of different construction uh, cranes. They can't pick up containers. It's too heavy. Uh, And and I see that. I used to work in construction. And when I think about these supply chains, nothing's abstract. I think part of the problem is you've got business people discussing this in abstraction. And then when they finally get out of the office, they go, Mm oh, this is a problem. I saw that with animal welfare 20 years ago when I worked with uh, McDonald's and I remember executives are coming out of the office and they saw some bad things and they go, Oh, this isn't just something, to, you know, relegate or give it to the lawyers or the PR department. We've got some problems here that we need to fix, but they didn't realize that until they saw it, not just reading about it, not just seeing something on a spreadsheet, but I'm actually seeing it. it. And yeah, I, we've got power, just a uh, power equipment that's falling apart
0: and got all kinds of problems. I think you're kind of, you're, Hitting a good issue there, Temple, that, you know, for a long time, we just think about all these things as abstractions, especially our food system. Uh-huh. We, you know, there hasn't been a lot of thought in the last two generations about how food gets to the grocery store. You go ask most, you know, young people today, how they does food know. show up at the grocery we store? And no. they, well, it just comes yeah. on a truck. And
1: Yeah, but the truck has to get it somewhere. Right. And, and the thing is, I'm in an ag, and so I can visualize the whole entire supply chain. I see it. It's not abstract. You see, and this brings up another thing that I'm getting very concerned about now in education okay. is uh, yeah. visual thinkers like me can't do algebra, but you need us in engineering so we don't make a mess like failing to put watertight doors on Fukushima because when you calculate risk, you don't see the water flooding the electrically driven emergency cooling pump.
0: Or do or you just simply don't put the emergency diesel generators below sea level in the basement of a building?
1: Or if you do, you put watertight doors in. Because there's actually a second Fukushima plant. I've been on its website, and they now have very elaborate waterproof doors and a seawall is double the height. But you see, I can see a risk like water flooding the site. Mathematicians calculate this, and they did it right for the shaking for the earthquake. Fukushima held. It was fine after the shaking, it's when it cramped.
0: It was. They just looked at just part of the system and the effects of a catastrophe on just part of an a system.
1: Well, they looked at the shaking, to, but they didn't.
0: They tried to look at it in they, isolation and didn't take a more holistic perspective systems. of what are the rest mm-hmm. of the system's effects going to be if X happened.
1: Well, I can see water flooding the site. Regular industrial doors are going to just bust out. And two seconds later, the basement's full of water. And this electrically driven pump that you need really, really badly is not going to work. doesn't matter how many generators
0: Hopefully they've learned because
1: some. Because if water, right. I mean, then you couldn't even work on it without pumping the water out of the basement. I'm thinking right. about how you, and, and then all the roads were blocked. I mean, I'm just seeing the math. You see, I see this stuff. It's not abstract. It, it, they, I think part of the problem is with a lot of people in charge of stuff, it's all abstract. It's just spreadsheets and stuff like that. And you've got electrical wires falling off the towers in California because they never maintain anything. So when the wind mm-hmm. goes 40 miles an hour, they've got to turn off the power. You gotta be kidding!
0: Yeah, well, we we gotta turn off the power because we didn't maintain our infrastructure. So you guys have to live in a blackout, and we're gonna get our buddies in the legislature to pass a law that says we're not liable for damages, and your insurance well, company'll yeah. pay for it.
2: What happened in Texas, right? Didn't weren't people without uh, power for like nine days, and it was totally unwarranted? Do you know that story? Well, the
1: problem is, and I've you know, I I just pieced together what I read in the paper, and yeah is that you had four different types of power that froze. You had wind power, which was 20% of the power. You had gas-fired plants, and you had a coal-fired plant and a nuclear power plant that froze. Now, your easiest ones to winterize is where the stuff that froze is on the site. The windmills, um, you know, that's a distributed system, and and they didn't buy the winterized version. That's going to be hard to fix. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they get too much ice on the blades, you have to turn them off because they get wrecked spinning like a washing machine off balance
0: out of balance oh, I see. that would
1: wreck yeah. the, that would wreck the windmill that would absolutely wreck it.
0: there's a couple of cool videos on YouTube of, of flaming windmills because of out of balance blades
1: well they've been a break the out of it. you know and. you know like you washing machine I can break the washing machine if you don't stop it when it's severely out of balance
2: yeah I've done that so mm-hmm. you've
1: actually busted one
2: yeah I'm yeah not the smartest one <laughs>
0: okay. you know, and some of the power yeah. plants that froze up their cooling water ponds froze up all the way down to the intakes, and they couldn't intake any cooling water. Um, you know, and gas supply lines, natural gas supply lines froze because you know the raw gas coming out of the field still had enough moisture in it to freeze in the extreme cold. You know, to- well,
1: the, the, this is the thing where where you have to find out. I uh, see. Then you have to, all the mess of different people own these things. But the first thing is to find out exactly what froze, which is oftentimes difficult. You know, it's reading right. paper. What actually froze? And I've been around enough on um, industrials that the way to find out is you go visit the site and you get talking to the guys who actually work on the equipment and you get them off by themselves and you get away from the managers and they'll tell you, they'll show it to you.
2: They most likely already knew the answer before you even they already know the answer. Yeah, They
0: knew the answer. They knew what was going to happen.
2: You just had to break down the barrier. So they were in a safe place to actually give those answers. Right? Well, I've done that.
1: I've done that with some things and, yeah. And then I did, and then when I write up my report, I don't say where I found it out. But, I mean, you get yeah. a guy that's head of maintenance and you get him off by himself uh, and you know you're going to protect him and not reveal the source, they'll, they'll take you right out there, show you whatever it is, why it broke, how it fixed, then they'll tell you how stupid the suits are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be more of listening to these people that are working hands-on. Also, we're not replacing these people that work hands-on. Because a lot of the visual thinkers like me that are really good at good at that can't do algebra and they've taken all the shop classes out of the schools and factories of, and all kinds of industrial stuff are having a horrible time uh, hiring people that can fix stuff because the kids that can fix stuff, um, well, they got an autism label or a dyslexia label and never had a chance to do any hands-on classes. It is a connection back here to education because the people mm-hmm. I work with my career, they've retired. And I worked with people that were autistic, dyslexic. I know two people that are autistic that own metal fabrication companies and they have twenty patents apiece. Wow. You know, these are the, and they and they started out as small, small uh, little guy innovate type of it's little little guys do the innovation and the Absolutely. guys that think differently.
0: So Temple, one of the and, things I really want to talk about today that I've had several people reach out to me on social media over the last week or so, um, and they're very concerned about is is this pause ballot initiative that's going around in Colorado? And since you're you're in Colorado and you're obviously very well spoken and very intelligent, what break it down real fast? What is the pause act and why is it going to ruin agriculture in Colorado if it passes?
1: Well, you've got one thing in it where an animal has to be five years old before you can uh, get a product from it. Um, well, oh, you're dairy kidding. cows start milking way before age five, and They're usually uh, almost done, right? Well, that's right. And, yeah. and uh, you know, some of this stuff, uh, you wouldn't be able to spay dogs and cats. Eat. There's going to be a lot of unintended bad consequences, uh, you know, or you wouldn't be able to control the population of dogs and cats if you followed some of these. I'm very concerned that we're getting people making policy now that are totally removed from all things practice. It's and too, I don't think the people that wrote that wanted to uh, stop you from spaying dogs and cats. You wouldn't be able to help a cow-calf. There's a the thing about, you know sexual use of an animal. Well, the way it's written, if I palpated the cow for pregnancy testing or had to um, reach up inside an animal to help it have its uh, baby, that would violate that law. That's, uh, that's ridiculous. Wild. It, it, it's, uh, I'm really concerned, and I think one of the base things is we're getting everybody removed from the practical. In my class on livestock handling, for years, I've had the students do a scale drawing. And I found in the last five or six years, they're having more and more and more difficulty doing the scale drawing. And I had a student in my class this year who had never used a ruler in her entire life to measure. Oh, them. wow. How do you I, make I it th- to th- college? I think it's a
0: real, a real concern. How do you make it to college without having to use a ruler or Well, is it the team?
1: age of
2: the iPhone? Is that why? Like, is it... Well,
0: it's just all the age of tech, but this particular yeah.
1: student had never used a ruler to measure anything. And then they'd ask, well, why would you ever want to learn how to make a scale drawing? I said, well, let's say you want to remodel your house. You might want to make a scale drawing or you want to make sure the couch you're going to buy is going to fit in your living room. Let's exactly. just talk about those kind of basics. And they kind of go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You know, that's a good skill to have, uh, doing, uh, making a scale drawing.
2: I always take a tape measure with me when I go furniture shopping now. Like, because it has to, it has to fit perfectly or else I'm not going to buy it. <laughs>
1: well, you're doing the smart thing because my sister lives in New York and she was on the board for her apartment, and she says there's some innovative people in New York that became the couch doctors because people buy oh. a couch that won't fit in the elevator. And then you call the couch doctors, to cut it up, put it in the elevator, take it up to your apartment, and read Get it back summer. together.
2: Wow.
0: That's hilarious. <laughs> that is actual
2: real business. That's ridiculous. I've
1: also moved a lot, so that's why,
2: too. Trial and
1: error yeah. for me. <laughs> but this is where, um, you know, some innovative entrepreneur, a little guy innovating, coming up with a, a business where he could capitalize on people's inability to yeah. measure the elevator before they bought a couch. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, so back to the pause Act. What, what can, how can people fight that? I mean, what, well, I what can what we do we besides be raising doing, awareness?
1: Yeah, what we need to be doing is people that are doing really innovative things in ranching need to be reaching out to the public and showing how they're improving land. Because a lot of people just believe that livestock just wreck the land. But if you use them right, you can improve the land. This is something most people don't realize. Um, we've got to start, you know, communicating it, uh, showing that the animals are part of the land. I had kind of a big wake-up call about three years ago. We had a seminar where they invited an agronomist in to talk to animal science, and they, and and the agronomist explained how our best land for crops in Iowa and Illinois, it was created by fruits of grazing bison. Now, if you do um, grazing right, uh, you can actually improve the soil health. That's something that we should be doing. You know, if you just keep plowing up the land and doing monoculture, that wrecks soil health. Monoculture makes a lot of money in the short run. It, it, it wrecks everything in the long
0: run. It strip mines all the health out of the sand. That's the problem. You lose that your topsoil, the and then you end up... Using synthetic fertility to grow crops in basically a substrate.
1: Well, that's the problem. But if you were to rotate crops and then maybe every third or fourth year you had a cover crop, and then you put some livestock grazing on it because you got to graze a cover crop to make it pay, you would be improving soil. You did it right. By adding, very, very local.
0: By adding natural fertility and natural that's biology right, back know. to the soil.
1: That's right. That's what you would do. And, and the animals are part of the land. It's, it's uh you know we're going to have to get you know much more integrated things and the big monoculture it makes a bunch of money in the long in the in the uh, short short term short right? run, but it yeah. doesn't work in the long run and you're good there's good ranchers out there doing a lot of things to improve habitat for wildlife to improve a lot of things and we need to be making the public a lot more aware of
2: it. i agree i work with i work with a lot of ranchers in different states and i will say my most profitable ones and the ones that actually have like better mental health as well, are my regenerative ranchers who understand soil health as a foundational principle.
1: Well, and it's been interesting watching this evolve because I've been getting that grass farmer newspaper for years. And now, you know, 20 years ago, that was looked at like sort of alternative, um, really kind of crazy. And now, thank goodness. Witchcraft
0: and voodoo. Yeah, yeah,
1: snake oil. Now it's becoming much more mainstream. But this is how a lot of things, you know, you know, things that are considered totally far out uh, uh, become mainstream, and then there is some stuff that's far out that is just rubbish. But there's other stuff, and I think of the probiotics and the chickens. And as I went up the escalator at that big food show, I was kind of laughing, going, "Hmm, 20 years ago they stuck their nose up. It. Now they're hanging gigantic banners all over the trade show." It. Now, when I talk yeah. about that, I see it. I see it. Yeah.
0: There have been a lot of changing about- attitudes. You know, I'm I'm in my early 40s, so I've I haven't been around there as long as you have, Temple, but I've definitely seen the switch from you know the high-stress rammer jammer cowboy types to the lower-stress,
1: right?
0: You know, low low-stress handling techniques and better-designed facilities. In fact, well, the I was, handling
1: is, the handling's improved. That's the thing mm-hmm. that's improved. That is that is really good. But another thing I'm concerned about in animal husbandry is pushing an animal's biology to take on some things. We've just gone too far on that. We're having more problems with uh, grain fed beef with a late stage dead. A week before he's supposed to be uh, processed, um, is rolled over and died. That used to not happen. Uh, well, what's causing pushing that? Pushing biology okay. to the point where it's just kind of overloading the system. You just start looking at optimal, not max. The chicken right. industry actually has fixed their problems, but they still have problems. Are they feeding cows, too hot uh, of a like, ration
0: for too long and making them grow too fast they their metabolic? And well, and there's, there's right. actually
1: four things. You have heavier at a younger age, okay, too much brain is another one. Another one is genetic. So you're breeding for meat, and there's some heart problems they're getting. And there is definitely a genetic component to that. Leg conformation issues, then they get lame, and then too many growth. From, well, there's four things that would contribute to pushing biology too hard. Now, what I have found on this at Least in B is, is uh, most feedlots don't do this. But unfortunately, there's a significant minority. I'm going to say 15 or 20 percent that are pushing cattle too hard, and they've got tons of liver abscesses, heart heart problems, and they bring this stuff in on the night shift. Uh, but it's not the whole industry. I want to make that very clear. It's what I'm going to call a significant minority. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just two or three percent where they're just uh, feeding 95 percent grain, no, practically no roughage, and just pushing the animals. To the point where their biology just is it's sort of like breaking a bridge.
0: That they've got you to know, harvest them a week overloaded. before their liver f- or their spleen well, breaks yeah. down, and or their lung lesions kill them.
1: Well, page the big problem, lungly. Uh, yeah, but it's looking at what's awesome, you know, and what you know, and pushing the biology. The pushing of a pushing of a system can sneak up on you, and you can, and you, you may not realize that happened with lameness and dairy calves. This is very well documented in the scientific literature. Where we? it got up to twenty five percent before farmers realized there was a problem. And three studies showed that if you ask a farmer what percent of your dairy cows are lame, they'll underestimate by half. Three scientific papers on that. Then you start to measure it. Ah! You know, this is really bad. This is what I call bad becoming normal. Very easy for it to slowly creep up on you, and you kind of don't. don't.
0: I think I just read an article within the last day or two that almost 98% of the dairy cattle walking around right now, I mean Holstein breed, can trace have semen from oh, one seven, of two bulls,
2: six breeds, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, like or you know, and, and we're talking yeah. about you know lineages, breeding yeah. and feeding, and we're kind of dancing around you know epigenetics and how how breeding and feeding through the ages and feeding you know forages that these animals haven't okay. been. Well, the other long- problem
1: they're having with the dairy cow, and this is very well documented in the literature. and I've documented a lot of the stuff in my book, uh, Improving Animal Welfare: Practical Approach. I've looked all these studies up and put them in there. I'm is the breeding of the dairy cow is getting more and more difficult. I kind of like to look at, at an animal uh, sort of energy budget and the budget of how all, all physiology works, sort of like a national budget. So if, it, if that cow was a country, if mm-hmm. I put the whole national budget into milk production, in other words, I'm going to breed just for milk production, then I'm going to shortchange infrastructure, which will be skeleton, that's lamus and uh, fertility, that's repro. I may also shortchange my military which is immune function and fighting disease. Nothing yeah. free in this world. All of this stuff takes energy. Going back to the evolution of the leaf to make the more circuitous, you know, path of veins, it, it takes more energy to build that. But plants evolved to to a distributed supply chain for a reason. Because it's less likely to be disrupted. Great stuff. No, but the problem that we get is we get into these um, uh, these problems where it creeps up slowly and then you finally well there's a problem, here. right?
2: And it takes a long time becoming to warm. change those, right?
1: Well, there's dairies right now that are doing crossbreeding. Um, you know they'll, uh, you know, breed cows to angus to get some uh, crossbred beef cattle. That's good. Uh, yeah. There's being some crossbred dairy cows being used, but yeah. then they didn't start noticed doing the beef that on dairy. Until you, yeah. until it's they got into trouble.
0: There's several uh, dairies around me, small kind of artisan grass fed dairies. Uh, there's one. That they've developed their own dairy cow that works perfect on their farm. Um, they just call it the Jaco breed. But the the other two that I'm thinking of, they all use Jersey cows. And I tell you, I'd rather yep. have grass milk oh, yeah. from a Jersey cow.
2: Their components. Oh, mm-hmm.
0: grass milk from a Jersey cow, even raw milk from a grass Jersey cow. Days before I'll I'll want to drink, you know, vitamin whole milk out of the gut.
2: The idea is 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 consumers don't know that, so mm-hmm. they so so consumers think volume right so you're buying a gallon of milk right and a lot of it yeah. times it's like one percent and i always laugh i'm like never buy one percent milk you're just paying for water but but it's it's their buying decisions they don't realize that the quality is is and not to offend any Holstein breeders or growers but um it doesn't have those components for 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 taste right so uh, yeah
1: there's always a price and the thing is we do have a lot of you know a lot of people that low-income people and they do get. true uh and and uh, but there's a point where you overload a system and it breaks, and uh the supply chain broke people really saw it for the first time and not just in food but in other products too and going whoa maybe this isn't such a good idea you know and with the pork that was the worst i mean you took 300,000 head of pigs and you just killed them on the farm and threw them away that was atrocious.
0: That was heartbreaking. I couldn't imagine no, being being that terrible. contract pig farmer.
1: No, it would be terrible for the pig farm. Just terrible. Mental health issues. Um, um, some of the methods used to kill them were bad. Uh, you know, the whole thing was just really bad. And the problem with big is it's fragile. And it doesn't matter whether it's electrical distribution system or it's uh, or pig farms or it's uh, semiconductors for your car. Or pharmaceuticals, which is common generic drugs that are essential, big stretch. And now I just now I'm seeing the picture on the front page of the Wall Street Journal: of a huge container ship stuck on an angle to it. I'm gonna be interested to find out how to get it out.
0: It, I'll definitely want to see that because I'm a very visual person.
1: Well, I can see the picture because I, I when I got the paper this morning and I looked at it and I'm going,
0: <laughs> it's they they sure have a maybe problem. Maybe a ship
1: that big shouldn't even go through the, that canal. I don't know.
0: It's the ship I was on. I was on an aircraft carrier, and I don't know the specs on the one that's grounded, but you know, I was I was on aircraft carrier that was dang near a quarter mile long, and we were 166 feet wide at the waterline. Flight deck was 250 feet wide, and there were several parts going through the canal that you could walk. You could go to one edge of the flight deck and look down. And see dirt, and then walk to the mm. other side of the ship and look down and see dirt. The ship was overhanging the shore on both sides. And, that was and what canal were
1: you going through?
0: Suez. That was the Suez Canal. The Suez. Yeah, I think they've widened it through those parts since then. Uh, that was on the first transit that I went through, would have, which would have been uh, 1998.
1: Yeah, I see the problem is this ship is like in there, jammed in on a 45-degree angle.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, know I, I saw that.
1: Hey, this morning, I haven't looked at any other thing about it but then it said how many containers you put on it and then i'm thinking about another article i read where some humongous gigantic container ship and the problem is if something goes wrong with that you mess up five ships worth of shipment and people are beginning to realize that maybe that's a bad idea to have a container ship
0: or like we saw you know a year and a half ago with the big uh big fire out of the tyson plant at holcomb kansas that's right you know that's not that big of a plant Considering the scale of the harvest, but percentage-wise, that was a major disruption.
1: Well, it was, and yeah, uh, it was a less of a disruption than the pig disruption was. COVID, the pigs worse, but it definitely was a disruption. And the problem is the fire got started in the cardboard box storage from the one place that was burned, and it damaged the pre-stressed concrete and roof. That's why it took because those giant beams they had to take out of their place.
0: My brother-in-law caught part of the electrical work to rewire that place. and uh, Oh, he did? Yeah, he said it was all hands on deck. Tyson does not care what it costs. Wow. Get it running now. So they, they took yeah, and they- everybody off of every electrical job. They were building a jail up in northwest Kansas. They pulled everybody off. They even got some union guys to come in, and they just they slammed everybody they could find into that Tyson plant. And they weren't the only... He, so he was doing electrical
1: work. but someone had to do a lot of structural work, before well, they did the electrical.
0: Yeah. It, it was... He said it was all going on at the same time.
1: Wow. You know, as much as as much as it possibly could be. Um, and, but we've got... But when they built our new chemistry building, five years ago, I talked to Tina, who was the head of that project, and she told me that they were short on electricians. They just... Uh, people weren't going into the trade. You know, that's a
0: real essential skill. Go to college, though. Get a degree. I think but that the
1: electrician's a... going to have a job, and and we're going to and the and the people of my generation are retiring, mm-hmm. and we're going to need people to you know fix stuff and build stuff. We've got bridges that are falling apart. I'll never forget a bridge I outside outside of Chicago where all the reinforcing steel was showing, and they had plates and cables wrapped around it to hold it together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah.
0: you'll look at it and go, that's terrifying. And then 10,000 people walk by and drive by on city buses and don't even look at it.
1: Well, I noticed it. And the only reason I didn't take a picture of it is because it was on my phone or going by. Otherwise, I would have taken a picture of it in the car. But I'm going, this is, like, terrible. And then was, these are things, but it doesn't matter whether it's ag or whether it's other infrastructure. We're going to need people to fix stuff. And my kind of mind, the object visualizer. These kids are sort of getting shunted in the special ed department and they never get a chance to take shop. Or take ag. We need to make sure we keep our FFA classes in the school. We've got to make mm-hmm. sure we keep that. Really important.
0: Very important. You know, we're, we see the loss of that. I remember, I can remember seeing things that say that, you know, back in the 1950s and 1960s, a high school graduate could pretty much, you know, walk out and walk into an apprenticeship if they, you know, like an auto repair shop or at an air conditioning place or at TV repair. Well, that's and, right. But that there were courses in high school. Mm-hmm. that started preparing people for careers in the trades. And if you couldn't yeah. find a trade you wanted to go into, that's when you went to college. And and somehow that's we got right. got all that messed up. Yeah. So well, how do we go these back? Are
1: job, these are good jobs, really good jobs that are not going to go away. That's the thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So how, how do, do we, we go, go back? We need to be
1: on um, things like working on the regenerative agriculture. Uh, one of the things we need to be doing is writing about those funds. Um, examples of that that really work and writing about because one thing I did when I first started my career back in the 70s I designed some new cattle handling system I wrote about and and we need to be writing about particularly innovative both getting it out to the public but also getting it into the academic scientific journals too we need to be doing both getting it to both places that we can show how if we use livestock right we can improve life that's one of the things we need to be teaching
0: temple I gotta I gotta tell a little story real quick so you, you just mentioned your work in the early 70s out there in Arizona. And um, my really, my close friend, he lives, his ranch is just about three miles upriver from mine. And sadly, he's had yep. to sell and he's moving. Um, his father was uh, one of the guys that worked at TNC Feedlot, TNC Feed At which feed yard? TNC is what he oh, said. Oh, TNC.
1: Well, that, yeah, that's in Maricopa. That was in Maricopa.
0: Yep. He said his dad was one of the guys that worked at TNC. And he remembers you being there. Ed said he was all yeah. of about eight at the time, but he said he remembers you getting down on your hands and knees and going through, going through facilities and going through stuff. I did
1: that. I still have some old pictures. I think I took at that feed yard.
0: Oh, Ed Bricker, Senior, if you recall the name. If not, I, I yep, did not tell Yep, that him name.
1: I, yes, I remember that name. <laughs>
0: that's awesome. It's it's kind of a small world sometimes.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: His son is is my best friend and, and closest neighbor. Like I said, unfortunately, they're they're getting ready to relocate, but uh, I've enjoyed having him as a friend while he's here. But that was that was the okay. neat story that he told me this morning. I just thought I'd throw that out there.
1: Oh, well, great. Well, thank you for passing that on to me. Appreciate it. That's
0: great. So circling back to the Paws Act, like how how can we fight that? Like wh- what can we do besides doing a better job of telling our story um, in regenerative ag well, and, his, just and his lifestyle?
1: Specific things, and uh, and I think talk about a lot of the unintended bad consequences. There's an awful lot of things where you have people that get way too abstract, make make legislation, and do stuff that doesn't. We're going to have more and more problems. And as someone who's worked on you know designing slaughter plants and things like this, one thing that's gotten me interested in regenerative agriculture is I'm learning about how we can use um, you know animals to actually you know improve land and do something that's very very sustainable sustainability is going to get more and more important. And we need to look at some of these supply chains for um, okay, some, okay, let's say one somebody wants to do almond milk. Well, that's mm-hmm. not sustainable. Almonds take up huge amounts of water. Huge amounts. Almond milk's not sustainable.
0: Oh, but trees are good though, right?
1: Well, you can do things with trees where you overdo it. I think with bio, a certain amount of biofuels in moderation is sustainable. But then I read about something and I thought it was just crazy. I actually put it in my book on on improving animal welfare, a practical approach, where they cut trees down in the southeastern United States, chop them all up into pellets, put them on a boat, ship them over to the U.K., and burn them in a power plant. There's no way that that's sustainable. That's biofuels gone crazy. You see biofuels in moderation, you know, can be really good. People, yeah. it, see, the thing is, is, where do you stop?
0: Transporting a shipload of wood waste to Europe to burn in a power plant, like, wouldn't that's we have just been thing. better off to take the fuel from the ship and burn it in the power plant instead?
1: Well, that's right. I couldn't believe, you know, I looked to look I found out that I'm going, you've got to be kidding. The world's... And then various things I've read about about biofuels. I've been oh. down to Brazil where you go miles and miles and miles past nothing but sugarcane for biofuels.
0: But biofuels so are a green. Amount of
1: that, a certain amount of that sustainable. And, and then there's a point where it gets unsustainable. They don't see where to stop.
0: I think the problem with sustainability is, you know, sustainability kind of predicates the idea that where we're at is okay, and we just want to stay here. And I I, I don't accept that. I don't accept that the current yeah. state of the world of, of spaceship Earth is acceptable, yeah. and I want to work very hard to yeah. regenerate it back to a better place.
1: That's right. That is right. And we've got to be thinking, and it's going to be the small people that are going to do it. You know, a lot of people are interested in cultured meats, they're interested in, you know, burgers made with vegetable stuff. Well, you look at the ingredients, you've got a lot of different stuff uh, that you're putting in that. Each one of those things has a supply chain. Has it actually been looked at, see what the energy requirements and stuff are to get all the different ingredients that you need?
0: Exactly. Because see,
1: I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. You've got to grow it. I remember I was on some trip and we were talking to, uh, about uh, – a country in Central America where they were growing some ingredient for uh, uh, some uh, herbal remedy where it wasn't sustainable. Uh, I read the other day about feeding seaweed cattle to reduce methane, but now I can see somebody out there strip mining the oceans of seaweed. That would not be sustainable.
0: Let's destroy destroy an ecosystem in the ocean that other creatures are dependent on to feed it to cows.
1: I, no, that is to, definitely, definitely. To balance their definitely. emissions from
0: eating corn. Like, what? let's just stop yeah. feeding them grain in the first place. Well,
1: there's things where we've got, there's a lot of things. But what we need to be doing is, I think on a lot of things, is looking at a lot of the things that innovators are doing. And you also need to write about it and talk about it. That's another. You know, people ask me, well, how did I manage to have a big effect on improving cattle health? I wrote them. And I wrote about it a whole lot. And I just wrote how-to articles. I about the flight zone, point of balance, how to design a facility. What a drawing of the facility in the art. You know, and I see things written up in the Stockman Grass Farmer, but that's a fairly limited audience. Right, it's a really good paper. I get it, but it goes to a limited audience. It's not available online.
0: I get it too. It's a terrific resource and one of my favorite things to do. Whenever I get it, is read Joel Salton's column on the front page.
1: Yeah, well, I read that those that, those things too, and I've been out to um, I've been out to Polyface Farm, and you know, he's uh, growing an amazing amount of food off that one. Well, I, I'm going to have to go in a few minutes. Well, Tem- uh, great talking to you.
0: Temple, it's been short, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Is there anything yes, we you. anything we left well, on the I table? I think
1: we will, pretty well have you know, talked about a whole lot of things. Uh, another thing, I've done a lot of work on animal welfare guidelines. You have to have clear, simple guidelines. You can't say things like, handle them properly. What does that mean? Like if I'm running a supply chain, and I've consulted with a lot of people, that are supply chain managers, I have to have very clear things that are not acceptable in my supply chain. And it has to be written very clearly. So if I take them off the approved supplier list and they want to sue me, I've got very clear language on what's absolutely not acceptable to do if you are if you uh, are a supplier for, for this company. Clear guidelines. And there's a tendency a lot of times and I find verbal thinkers overgeneralized, they will something like handle them properly or give them an appropriate amount of space well, I don't know what that means. You've got to have clear guidance. Also, the tendency now is to go with outcome measures. Because I designed the original uh, American Meat Institute system for scoring uh, you know, slaughter plants. Outcome measures, like uh, how many animals fall during handling. That's something that's very easy to measure. And then I can tell if it's getting better or getting worse. And measure, but going with outcome measures. Well, of course, on regenerative agriculture, soil health uh, would be an outcome measure. You need to have a place to evaluate objectives. But clear, really clear guidance. Because when I talk about these measures, I see it. Like I'll see a lame cow. Basic animal welfare. Body condition of cows. Lameness. Swollen knee joint. Sturdiness. These are things that I can measure. I can tell that, am I getting better? Or am I getting worse? Really simple things that you measure.
0: My dad always likes to say, if you don't measure, you can't manage. It doesn't well, I,
1: exist. Yeah, that's true. And then sometimes if you use the wrong metrics, then you might put the wrong incentive into it. And that can get problems.
0: That's great. Before we go, I know CK had something that she really wanted to get out. So, CK, okay. it's um, all you.
2: I, I, just, I know you've been in this game a, a long time, but when you started, did you feel like you got a lot of criticism from the beginning, and how did you handle that?
1: Well, being a woman was the biggest barrier I had. Right. And I made myself really good at what I do. What I did. I also found back doors to things. There was a scene in an HBO movie of Temple Brandon where I go up to the editor of the farm magazine and get his card. Because I knew if I wrote for that magazine, that would help my career. And then I started covering meetings. And I got a reputation for writing really good, accurate articles. I'd summarize a speech at the meeting. It would be accurate. And Mm -hmm. so writing skills were important in my career. And a lot of young students today, their writing skills are terrible. Absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. Because if I had not produced a decent article, the summary of my master's thesis work on cattle, squeeze shoots and cattle handling, they wouldn't have published it. Uh, But I also saw places where there were back doors. And where I had most of my trouble was with the foreman level of management. It wasn't the owners of the field. It was the foreman where I had the trouble. And I had to make myself really good, be twice as good as a, as a guy. Um, and there were people that helped me. There was a contractor who um, saw my abilities, and he was a former Marine Corps captain. He seeked me out to design projects for him to build. He was just starting a small construction company. He was a very helpful mentor. There were some people that helped me. Like Jim the contractor. There was my science teacher when I was in high school. There was Ann out at the ranch. I was still visiting her. You know, people like that were were really, really helpful. Mentors. I cannot emphasize the importance of mentors. Mm-hmm. It's just so important. Thank you. Really important.
0: Well thanks for that temple. Okay,
1: well I think I think we've probably talked about you know more. Running stuff. out of time. Yeah. yeah Running out of time. And the other thing, I'll tell you one other thing. When I first started, here's a mistake I made most of my twenties and seventies. I thought I could build a self managing cattle handle. A lot of engineers make that mistake. They can solve the problem totally with technology. No, I can solve a lot of things with technology, but I also have to have management. I have to have the management to so go with And when we worked on the McDonald's animal welfare audit, um, out of 75 suppliers, only three had to buy expensive equipment. Everything else we fixed with a lot of maintenance and management and things like non nonstop flooring, adding a light to illuminate a chute. Um, most of the places didn't have to build a whole lot of equipment. Uh, it was making them repair and fix and manage the stuff they had for the most part. And there were three places out of 75 that had to do some very expensive renovation of the whole front end.
0: Cover up this hole, latch down this chain, get get rid of that mirror, get rid of that shiny thing.
1: Well, we did a lot of that, and we also did a lot of management things, like teaching people basic flight zone and point of balance principles, not to yell at cattle and not to constantly hit the side of the chute. I'll have people say, well, Temple Grandin just talks about the same old thing. But I found that, find that I have to. And then when that student says I talk about the same old stuff, gets out in the field for three years. Then they find out why I'm still talking about some of the same old things. It's just like traffic. Yeah. A police are still have to be out there enforcing the speed limit. That, they they, could, they can never stop enforcing. It Now handling's gotten better. There's some surveys that are showing that maybe something like yelling and screaming at cattle. Now 70% of the people don't do it. But you still have three, three, 30 or 20 or thirty percent that's yelling and screaming at cattle. You still have to keep talking about basics.
0: Those are the guys that get su- sent home at noon with a full day's pay, and we finish without them and don't get no, called you've got back. To, um,
1: you've got to um, still have to talk about basics and, and manage Well, it's been really good talking to you.
0: Temple, we really appreciate and your time today. And I'm going to have to catch
1: this other phone call that's coming in right now.
0: Okay, thank you for joining us today, Temple, and have a wonderful day.
1: I will. Thank you, thank you so much. Okay.
0: Bye. Bye. What an amazing conversation with an amazing lady. I know that was a shorter show than normal, but I think it was well worth it. Very information packed. It's absolute pleasure to speak with Temple. And I, I hope the guests that we had lined up to release don't mind being bumped a couple of weeks. I think uh, I think they won't mind being bumped from Miss Grandit. So guys, don't forget to come check us out on Facebook. Like the Ranching Reboot page on Facebook. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would really, really help, especially a five-star rating. Share this podcast with your friends. And don't forget to come hang out with us in the Ranching Reboot paddock, our private group on Facebook. The first hundred of you coming in are the first hundred. After that, I might lock it up and make you pay to get in. So, guys, I'm Red Hills Rancher, signing off. Another episode of Ranching Reboot. Red Hills Rancher. Out.